0: so
1: here again back in the hot box yep, yeah as always
2: yep how are you doing seth um i'm doing pretty well you know joe biden's dark winter is over and now we're here joe
1: biden is in from the cold mm-hmm. did you know that joe biden's middle name do you know his middle name no the R, what it stands for i just found no. this out it's so crazy to me his middle name is robinette
2: Robinette?
1: Robinette. That is not a real name. Like. <laughs> that's like. Uh, I don't know. That's just like. Um... One of those memes of like
2: the upper class white mom, like <laughs> making a chalkboard of like her names. Like Laken, Brantley, Robinette.
1: <laughs> it's just like with a name like Robinette, you're just like born to be a grandma like regardless of gender you are a grandmother if you have the name robinette i think i don't know what the origin of that name is but joe biden has it yeah 40 46 mr 46 yeah how are you doing today nathan uh i'm doing okay i'm just uh I'm, you know drinking on a little bit of coffee right now Ooh, the devil's cup the night coffee exactly the evening the evening cup the evening roast yeah. um and i it was it's some blend called like horsepower or something and it says like wake up and kick ass on the side of it uh, i got it because i had to order groceries because unfortunately one of my housemates tested positive for covid he's doing okay and it's isolating but uh I, yeah i had to order groceries for that reason because i'm staying at home and the selection of coffee beans of whole coffee beans left a little bit to be desired so i was like you know what? i'll just get something that has a funny name they had the mm-hmm. like death wish coffee and i kind of thought about getting that as a bit yeah but then i was like but what if it's what if it gives me an actual death wish and then i have to like Drink this whole bag? I don't think so. So yeah. I got horsepower instead. And I have not been on the whole bean life for very long, but I just got a pour over kind of like, I guess it's sort of like a mini, like personal Chemex basically. So I have this little pour over kit and a grinder, which has been a nice routine every morning. Have some little devices, some little machines, some little things to clean. Yeah. And obviously, they both involve a grinder, but it reminds me a lot of, of of kind of weed maintenance, weed prep, taking care of the bong, which mm-hmm. I just cleaned. You know, new year, new bong, not a literal new bong, but I cleaned my bong out for like the first time since I've, I've had this bong maybe about six months or so. I don't think I've fully really cleaned it because it's a silicone bong, so it's like kind of hard to clean. And I figured there was a lot of gunk in it. Didn't want to put that in the dishwasher So, I was doing some research, found that with a silicone bong, you get a little bit wet, you get it damp inside, put it in the freezer, and it freezes the resin, and then you just crack it out. And I was a little bit skeptical at first, but it works like a charm. Hotbox, consumer goods, corner, tool time, home improvement, DIY corner. Pro tip, you got a silicone bong, freeze that motherfucker. Get the resin out, dump it out. You're just maintaining your little machines. Like an old man with trains. Yeah, I mean, I've long thought about getting into model trains. It's, I mean, obviously I can't, you know, I don't have the disposable income nor the space required for that kind of hobby. But if I did have either of those things, would love to get into model trains. I do have another new machine in my life, uh, which is kind of similar to these two other machines in that there are some moving components thank you, Eli Whitney, replaceable parts that I get mailed every month or like every couple of months, and I have to wash it, fill it with water, all this stuff. I am now the proud owner and regular user of a CPAP machine for sleep apnea. Officially got the diagnosis, moderate sleep apnea, which Mm -hmm. if you're not familiar with sleep disorders (laughs) – Sleep apnea, basically, you just, you know, you're like airways close while you're asleep. And that happens to everybody while you're asleep. There are moments where you're like nasal passages or your throat closes or whatever and you wake up. But if you have sleep apnea, obviously that happens like way, way, way more times than should be happening. So it limits oxygen that can get to your brain, which not only makes sleep worse, but can also lead to like memory issues or health issues or heart issues down the line if you're not getting regular oxygen to your brain. So I've started using a CPAP machine, which, you know, like. You, if you're not familiar with it, you have probably seen a gag in, like, a sitcom or something about, like, somebody who has a ma- sleeps with a mask on. Um, but I've got this, like, crazy little device on my nightstand that is super futuristic. It's got this digital display. Is it connected to the internet? It has, like, signal bars, but I don't know if it actually... It doesn't like, as far as I know, it's not connected to Wi-Fi, but it does have some kind of signal, and it's like transmitting both to like my doctor and I guess the like insurance company and the like te- the CPAP technician company and stuff and the specialists who kind of talk me through it. But it also sends data to an app so I can like monitor. How long I had it on for, which sort of gives me a rough idea of how long I slept for, like how many times I sort of adjusted or took the mask off during the night, Um, whether the mask was like leaking or not and, and air was leaking out of it. All this kind of crazy data and stuff. And I don't know, it's just kind of fascinating because it's just like, you know, it's this very smart kind of home appliance now and like, I remember, like, maybe a decade ago or so when I was younger, my mom also had sleep apnea. She tried a sleep CPAP machine, she didn't really like it, she didn't like how it felt on her face, the mask, and everything. But then it was like a m- much louder, not as plugged in, or, or turned on, or tuned in kind of device um just you know more like a humidifier or something and this is like made to be digital and like plugged in and everything and give you all this up to the minute information but it's also this instrument of surveillance because i have to use it a certain number of hours every week for insurance to still want to pay for it like i have to use it a cumulative like 24 hours a week for insurance to think that i'm using it enough for them to pay for it uh so basically they're like surveilling my sleep and surveilling my health and it's just made me think about how much of our fucked up healthcare in this country is basically the panopticon So anyways, a little hot box, the healthcare marketplace for you. (laughs) Jeez. That just
2: reminds me of like, uh, whenever like action movies will market themselves off of like people's heart rate on their smartwatches. You ever seen these?
1: Oh yeah. No, I was talking to one of my roommates when I got the device in about how it reminded me of the like Wii device that was like. You know, it's like the thing at the hospital where you put your finger in and they do your heart rate or temperature or whatever, or pulse. And like, I don't remember if that device was ever developed. I feel like you might know, but it, you wasn't know, it was supposed sad. to. It was a. It was supposed to basically monitor your, your like engagement with a game physiologically. So if you were like, if your heart rate was lower, it was sort of like, oh, you're getting bored. Like, let's send you a new puzzle or challenge or more enemies or whatever. Um, I was literally thinking about that uh, when I got the the CPAP.
2: The way you described buying coffee beans earlier is kind of the way I approach buying wine sometimes. Oh yeah, no. Just catch my eye. Give me something
1: here. Yeah, you got like a, a colorful rooster on there or like a funny name that I can make a joke about at the dinner party. Or like sometimes they have like holographic labels and that oh, is an yeah. instant.
2: That's an instant purchase. That's for a me.
1: that's a must. You know, it's it's really a shame that there's not more like maybe there is and I'm just not aware of this market, but more like tie in wines. I would buy some like Star Wars branded wine with like a holographic Yoda on it. Baby Yoda wine anyway yeah so any recent media engagement or any recent oh thoughts in that old noggin Uh, i guess the only thing i really have to to riff
2: on at the beginning um that's not exactly related to the episode today is just the amount of kaveh zahedi that's in my life again recently um you know the show about the show yeah the show about the show tripping with Cave. these are all you know i feel like we've talked about all these before
1: in the bathtub of the world i don't hate las vegas anymore some classics a uh, real yeah. rack and tour and maverick of of american indie cinema nobody does it like him nobody burns bridges better than Cave. <laughs> nobody smokes harder than Cave. also that yeah. man shout out stoner hall of fame yeah Anyway, I've like I've seen the show about the show long ago,
2: known about this man for a while, but he's come back in my life recently because, uh, you know, friend of the friends of the show. Uh, sorry, the
1: podcast about the podcast.
2: Yeah, I was just thinking friend of the show sounds like show about the show. Yeah. But anyway, friends of the show, extended clip, did an interview with him recently.
1: Yeah, they had an episode about, well, you know, of course they do double features every week and did a double feature about his movie i'm a sex addict and then they like sent the episode to him and reached out and he was their first ever like filmmaker guest wow but yeah it's a great
2: interview he's a always somebody that i i'll listen to the man talk about just about anything
1: Yeah, there's some, there's some great shit talking and, and gossiping, but also I think that he just has such a like unique way of engaging with the world. And there's some kind of parts of that podcast where he starts to complain a little bit about his words, not mine, PC culture. And normally when people say that term, which he kind of throws it out very nervously. um, But I, I really tense up when people say that kind of thing. But I think that the way that he actually sort of explains his sort of criticisms of, like, contemporary moralism is, like, comes from a a very sincere place of just, like, wanting people to engage with other people on good faith terms. And it's not about, like, being, like, let me say whatever problematic or edgy thing I want. It's just, like, owning the messiness and the contradictions in your own life, which his work is all about, for better or worse. Yeah. And
2: earlier i said i to him talk about just about anything which luckily um you can do he has a podcast of his own that where it's just like little like micro stories ranging anywhere from like a minute to like four or five minutes mm-hmm. um and those have been an fun au-
1: an audio an audio microblog, perhaps i've mm-hmm. yet
2: yeah it's just little tiny moments from his life and they're really beautiful i listened to several of them today when i was at work. I was just at ease. Um mm-hmm. anyway, and then also all this this Cavaneus that I'd been kind of sampling over the last week. Uh I found out he was in waking life. He talks a little bit about that on his interview with Extended Clip. So I decided to watch that. And mm-hmm. he's great. He has a great little segment in that, I think.
1: Yeah, no. I think that his way of talking meshes really well with the animation style and also Meshes well with like Linklater's sort of storytelling, conversational approach.
2: Yeah, I don't know. That's about it. I just uh, that's that's about all I yeah. have in my brain these days.
1: Cave. I mean, in some ways, I actually do feel like Cave is a little bit related to our topic today because, really, when you get down to it, our topic today is about perspective and narration and Mm -hmm. here's a uh 50 dollar academic textbook word for you narratology perhaps maybe if if i didn't lose you there uh and like i don't know his movies are very much about that you know it's very much his voice figuratively stylistically literally and we are talking about first person cinema today Mm -hmm. and in some ways he is kind of a I mean, I don't know. I think you could make the case that he's almost a first-person filmmaker a little bit, just like, or maybe not. I don't know. What say you?
2: I think you could make that case. I mean, he uh, also comes a little bit from the academic world, um, being a multi-degree holder himself, and then also teaching, Mm -hmm. like, personal documentary courses. Um, Yeah. But, I mean, all of his, his movies that I've seen are very much just, like, Uh, they're just about him and he is just recording the stuff going on around his life and then talking about it and giving you context. But his stuff is also very, I think it actually meshes kind of well because his stuff isn't just solely about himself, but also it's very like viewer first. I feel like, I don't know. He makes movies in this way that are very, Mm -hmm. very like, I don't know. It feels like he envisions like the, the, the feeling of watching it as he's making it and is very, forthright with the audience and talking to them about what's happening on the screen Mm -hmm. so it kind of centers both the viewer and the filmmaker
1: there's a way where he i mean watching a one of his movies it's like he's really trying to talk to you and with you and have a conversation and and sort of a discourse with you um and I think that's that's sort of related to just the idea of like narration, you know, because when you think of like narration in cinema, it's essentially I think the kind of like conventional prototypical use of it, maybe in like Hollywood cinema is like someone telling you a story, essentially. So I think that... I mean, I think we sort of got interested. Uh, I feel like you really brought this idea to the table originally to do an episode about this. But it's something we've kind of circled and danced around perhaps in the past with talking so much about ye old intersection of gaming and cinema, cinematic technology, mm-hmm. um, gaming art and film technology. Um, <laughs> switching it up for you. Fuck you, Roger Ebert. uh, uh but geez i don't know even know where it's going but yeah this is the episode it's about first person it's in the first person what's up mm-hmm. you are the host now yeah
2: Fond we're just listener, two npcs talking in
1: front of you yeah you get to make the choices choose your own adventure um yeah but <laughs> anyways i think that i don't know okay so first person cinema Where do we see this start? Uh, I think it goes back again to that idea I brought up, narration. I think Mm -hmm. that's kind of... Before you had literal that kind of literal first-person viewer perspective directly aligned with the character perspective, I think that was kind of the initial way of directly linking character perspective and viewer perspective was like, narration a sort of like novelistic kind of narration
2: i think another point you see first person perspective um being granted to the audience was maybe some really really early film where cameras were kind of play it was uh, kind of like filming a play Mm -hmm. where the camera would shoot the entire set and not move and just kind of essentially act as the eyes of a play watcher and so then instead of it it I guess, like, had like before people had kind of seen like the screen as like one thing uh, to have a unique perspective to be shown to a lot of people rather than um, kind of giving like one kind of. Sorry, I'm kind of rambling right now with no real. Oh, end point.
1: no, 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 no. No, I mean, I think that totally the connection to early cinema is like totally there because I you think you see a lot of as a sort of. Kind of distinct cinema of the visual first person develops. A lot of that is kind of used to like express a like voyeuristic perspective. And I mean, a lot of early cinema too, uh, is, you know, kind of putting you in, in the very direct position of like a voyeur or peeping Tom. Um, so I think kind of like linking you with that sort of like illicit third party viewer, um is is another way that sort of that the sort of first person tendencies start to emerge because i think what it is is like it's starting to i guess explore how do you how do you really express or communicate the kind of like unreal like an unreliable narrator you know like because i think cinema as a medium so much lends itself to like this kind of objective totalizing perspective in a like very Byzant, you know like in the Byzantine way of like this is this image is a slice of reality um i think that the sort of urge to like experiment with the first person comes from that desire to want a sort of like ground of of audience or viewer in like an unreliable narrator. So that's where I feel like you start to really see like visual first person really start to pop off and develop it with like film noir, because I think film noir is really all about narration and like unreliable narrators and stories you can't trust and perspective that's skewed or very biased because I mean, you think about noir protagonists and so often the kind of trope is like, Oh, the movie starts and like the guy, like I think of like double indemnity you know where he's like bleeding out and he's like telling the story um and you you and these are like you know very not uh morally clear cut or coded characters and so you're getting this like kind of first person view you're getting told their direct view some not objective maybe misrepresented or biased sort of perspective
2: yeah and i think like at least like in you're looking at like third person versus first person you kind of see like um you know third person may be like being this outside omniscient maybe godlike perspective and then flipping that over to to a lived experience or at least like kind of a Mm-mm. a lived reality and trying to give sensation through that obviously i mean as we experience it now this is like not really what ends up happening i feel like it being like a selling point of something. Oh, God.
1: The pop filter is making the pop.
2: It's filtering nothing. It's literally multiplying them.
1: God. It's like a menthol filter.
2: I feel like the the not gimmick of it, but the mm-hmm. technique kind of grows and everything. People understand that it doesn't just like, it's not an empathy machine to put it in like modern kind of virtual reality terms. Anyway, yeah. I think noir is also an interesting genre for First person to to pop up again, um, because so much of that is just about like just about mood, just about looking.
1: No, totally. I mean, like being a detective is literally, you know, being like looking, being a voyeur, following people. Uh, and so much of noir comes out of hardboiled detective fiction, obviously. And also, I mean, so much of noir, the way people talk about it is like, oh, it's this sort of cultural response to World War Two you know coming back you have all this kind of societal upheaval Uh, you have all these men dealing with this kind of trauma and ptsd and stuff and they don't really have the resources of or vocabulary maybe to necessarily confront that or deal with that so you just have all these like very dark strange morally murky and ambiguous movies but also
2: they're they're movies that are like about people who are not only like individuated, but also Mm -hmm. they're being kind of alienated by the systems that, you know, by going off to war fighting in the war and then coming back and not being appreciated as they would hope to, or maybe just having a hard time integrating back into society.
1: Totally. I mean, I think that's why you maybe see the need for this kind of novelistic narration to develop in film in America around this time, just because like war trauma and stuff is such a like isolating personal experience that you, you need that like way to, for someone to communicate for a character to communicate that trauma or sort of memory or or experience just like very directly and personally um but also because of the sort of like moral ambiguity of a lot of noir i think it allows to communicate it allows for the communication of that kind of perspective without necessarily like taking a uh, one stance or the other on a character's behavior or or actions like it can still sort of condemn them because it's giving you literally the perspective of like some kind of like failed criminal or somebody who did wrong and then got screwed over or whatever and so it's sort of a moral warning almost but i think they're like first sort of some of the earliest you know not the never want to say you never want to say the first it's the first thing they teach you in school nothing's ever the first it's just uh You never say something was the first. Yeah, it's just the earliest... Uh, the, the first known, uh, but some of the earliest mm-hmm. like American, I feel like examples of this first person cinema or literally visual first person cinema are noirs. Like you have uh, lady in the late, um, Robert Montgomery from what year 1947 and, uh, also dark passage with Humphrey Bogart, um, directed by Delmer Daves, also starring Lauren Bacall. Um, which use first person perspective quite literally yeah. in the visual sense.
2: The use of first person in Dark Passage um, was actually the inspiration for Lady in the Lake being shot all in first person. Mm-hmm. Robert Montgomery just saw that and, and thought that he wanted to make a whole movie out of it.
1: Dark Passage was really interesting, I thought, because it was like in a number of ways just very different from what I was expecting. For some reason, I thought maybe only the first 20 minutes or so we're going to have first person perspective. And it's really like the first 40 minutes, Um, but it's not straight first person perspective the entire time the camera will will regularly cut back to the perspective of this humphrey bogart character who's like an escaped convict who allegedly murdered his wife and he's on the lam running and the first 40 minutes of the movie you never see his face because you are either like looking out from his perspective or you know if it's sort of a conventional hollywood cinematic style he's like Framed in shadows, or his hat is tipped low, or or whatever, and it's just kind of obscured. And then the next 40 minutes, he gets plastic surgery to uh alter his appearance. And so for the second third of the movie, he has bandages on his face, and so you can't see Humphrey Bogart's face for like two-thirds of this movie and then for the second third you can't also hear him because he can't talk because of like the bandages and the wounds healing and stuff so he's silent for the middle third of the movie and then the final third is normal iconic classic Humphrey Bogart face and he's talking and so it's just kind of like I don't know it's just in terms of his like star persona because I feel like Humphrey Bogart is embodied so much both in face and voice and those are really the two things that kind of are really sort of people really associate with him are these very physical qualities the sort of texture of his voice the texture of his face and they're sort of obscured uh for most of the movie or good parts of the movie um and so I think it quite literally even though the whole movie's not first person does kind of tie into what we're talking to with like unreliable narration where like you literally can't see or hear this protagonist for a lot of the movie you don't know who they are really at all in a lot of ways and kind of you find out more about his identity and what happened with this case and everything as the movie goes on and they're kind of more clues put together but he's also like getting a new name and sort of changing his identity and becoming a new person and you don't know the the pre-plastic surgery face, really. You know, like, you see pictures of it in newspapers, but you don't get to experience it, or there's no actor playing it or anything. So it's just this kind of, like, fascinating, like, identity-morphing movie, or just kind of movie about the fluid, fluidity of identity. Like, he falls, he's, like, with Lauren McCall, and she literally, like, gives him a new name uh, and, like, christens him, basically, with this new name and identity once he takes the bandages off. Did it ever, like...
2: Does anybody reach out and like touch the first person camera? Is there ever any kind of like he puts on glasses and you have glasses on the camera or anything like that?
1: Not that I can recall. There's really no kind of rupture of it. Really, it's just like. Fairly straight linked to his perspective, and a lot of it is just like Lauren Bacall talking directly to you. <laughs> um, but it does again, like I said, you know, it sort of breaks it up with just sort of like normal kind of distant perspective, long shots or medium shots, just of like what's going on, of you know, like in cuts out to the car if they're in a car, it cuts to Lauren Bacall. So it it does sort of like I don't know. I think we'll, one of the problems. You run into with a lot of first person cinema, and I think we'll talk about this a lot. It's just that sort of like uncanniness, you know, the like unblinkingness almost, uh, just because you like you know it's not real, but it is supposed to feel like you're really in this body, but it's not quite like being in a body and inevitably there's a rupture that happens. And I think Dark Passage kind of offsets that by not trying to do this technique for the whole movie, and then by also breaking it up shot to shot with, like, other perspectives. Whereas the movie you just mentioned it, that was inspired by Dark Passage, Lady in the Lake, tries to do it the whole time, and it's kind of excruciating. Yeah, it really an is. Experiment. So, like,
2: it's, it, like, has bookends on the front and end of the movie where it has Robert Montgomery kind of like talking to the camera about Mm -hmm. well he's playing Philip Marlowe the uh you know noir book and screenplay star and Mm -hmm. then it goes into the first person view for the whole time and sometimes there will be these breaks of people like offering him a cigarette and him lighting it and then smoke flowing up or you know standing in a mirror and then like seeing Robert Montgomery's body standing there All these different things, but most of the movie honestly ends up playing out kind of like a point-and-click adventure game. Totally. Honestly, kind of like a detective game.
1: Yeah, like some Grim Fandango shit.
2: Yeah, which I think is kind of interesting when you brought up earlier that, like, the first person kind of comes up in, like, early cinema through the kind of detective eye of noir because that's so much of also, like, what's popular in first person games, I think, is well, I mean, they're all mm-hmm. about being able to look and and you know, hopefully, creating something where people like feel like geniuses for like looking and seeing stuff in. Yeah, I don't know. I guess there are games like that now with things like The Witness or Return of the Oberdin that are like puzzle games that are all about like what you perceive.
1: Yeah, very much like Clue and Evidence based like mystery solving games. I feel like.
2: Yeah. But anyway, that's, I mean, Lady in the Lake, it'll, like, just the camera will walk in somewhere, and then you'll see a bunch of, like, stuff happen in front of you, like, somebody, like, walking in, and then, like, I don't know, like, trying to hide something really obviously, then walking away. I don't know, just laying out a bunch of, like, kind of eye-catchers for the audience. I don't it feels like I'm watching Blue's Clues, is what I'm saying.
1: It's just, like, I found it just grading to be aligned so intensely and exclusively with the perspective of this character because i don't know you know a lot of noir has a sort of misogynistic bent to it and i think there's a way where like when you are sort of just observing or witnessing the actions and perspective of a character you it's easier to sit with it or not feel really uncomfortable about it and just accept it as like part of the re- the world of the movie or whatever, or part of just that person's like personality or like some kind of character flaw or whatever. Like, but because you're literally aligned with this guy who's just like berating women and just like being horrible to people and stuff, it's just like, kind of hard to watch a little bit uh, because it just sort of makes the sort of like toxicity uh, for lack of a better word of just like the average male noir protagonist kind of bear because it, it, you are like literally like sitting in it and embodied in that hateful kind of guy. Um, And I just, I don't know. So for that reason, it's like, I think that's one thing too. That's that, is very interesting to look at all of these movies that we're sort of touching on or bringing up as examples because it's like whose perspective are you being put into whose perspective are you being aligned with
2: yeah and then like how much are you able to really like identify with that perspective mm-hmm. i don't know as much as like noir movies have that first person narration um, and kind of sometimes the frame of seeing it from, like, this one protagonist perspective or something like that. I don't know. I, whenever I watch noir movies and maybe engage with them more, it's never because I, like, really understand what the protagonist is going through or anything like that. Yeah. I don't know. A lot of times, to me, noir movies are ones that I have to kind of step back and take, like, more of a like a systemic or more abstracted view from that's pretty removed. Um, like all those Fritz Lang movies that I've been, uh, watching a lot of are so interested in systems. And to me, that's when noir is the most interesting. Anyway, I mean, all this is to say that I feel like aligning an actual Mm -hmm. first person perspective with noir, uh, removes like all mood, all mood altogether.
1: Yeah. I felt I'm watching lady in the lake. I felt like the air was sucked out of the room a little bit and it just felt very flat and vacuum sealed. Mm-hmm. I think that a movie that is is related a lot to like what we're talking about and I don't feel like people really talk about this much as a noir but to me it is very much in some ways or like at least a sort of outgrowth of it or influenced by it but I think Vertigo has a kind of kinship a lot with first-person cinema I mean, obviously, you know, like Rear Window and other Hitchcock sort of has these like maybe more literal moments of first person cinema. But obviously, there's a lot of sort of POV shots or sort of perspective from the Jimmy Stewart character in Vertigo. And that is in its own way, a kind of weird psychosexual detective movie. But you're not even like sure what the the mystery or the case is or like, I don't know. Um, but i think that kind of just like shows i don't know it's just like a it's just a very different example from like lady in the lake where it lady in the lake tries to do the literal perspective and kind of fails at it whereas vertigo sort of goes about that first person perspective indirectly and then is able to communicate that more Like literally, even though it's indirect, I don't know, but I think that, but I don't know, I've, I mentioned vertigo mostly as sort of a segue to a first person movie that I think is pretty interesting that was influenced a lot by vertigo, um, which is like much, much later than the noirs we've been talking about, but it does feel have kind of a noir quality to it. Um, but, uh, this Chinese film, Suju River from 2000, um, directed by Lu Ye. Um, which is very much a kind of vertigo type movie Um, but it's like from the perspective of a video videographer and is shot on many tv and obviously like digital cameras have really emboldened and allowed for a lot more first-person perspective filmmaking needless to say because it's just so much easier and there's so much more freedom of movement and so obviously there's we'll talk about it more i think but connections to found footage you know obviously that's a kind of like first person cinema um but seth you watched suju river pretty recently and i think it's like i don't know uh, uh, some of these movies sometimes i feel like don't like or at least something like lady in the lake has that very sterile formal approach and i feel like suju river takes a very different approach to like what first person filmmaking can be
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the comparison to Vertigo is pretty apt because it's so much about... I mean, it maybe literalizes it a little more than Vertigo does, but it's very much about, you know, what the audience remembers, what you've shown them, and then kind of like... Mm -hmm. um, Kind of like changing and actively kind of attacking, like, people's perception. Suji River, I feel like, is more... I feel like more actively just negating the plot altogether
1: totally yeah it is a very much a vibe movie
2: i don't know it's very like cloudy and hazy but also i mean that's what a lot to me at least that's what a lot of the vertigo riffs that i've seen end up doing is that they kind of continue adding new information and redacting old information in this way i guess one of the ones that i'm thinking of is like brian de palma Mm -hmm. and uh fuck the screenwriter no i'm thinking of um obsession with paul schrader uh, paul schrader yeah but the one that they both cited as being directly inspired by vertigo yeah i don't know all those movies kind of aren't directly in the first person perspective but are ones that really formally align you with the protagonist by actively aligning you with like what they see what they remember Um, and how, you know, reality is different than that.
1: Yeah, I think that's it's it's interesting because like early on, we were talking about early cinema and you we sort of mentioned like two types of sort of early, maybe what could be considered early first-person cinema that are in two ways very divergent, like because this kind of total stage view is a sort of first-person cinema, but of a like theater-goer view, and it sort of gives this like objective full picture, whereas the voyeur kind of mode is is more of that sort of like... (laughs) you know like nickelodeon kind of cinema um and 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 that sort of trajectory continues in a lot of this narrated uh cinema we're talking about and subjective cinema we're talking about but i think that like why late lady and the lake to me is a sort of failed experiment is because it takes that like stage view to its character's perspective you know what i mean like it it doesn't recognize that it has a like flawed protagonist and perspective and that's why it feels like a point and click game because it's just sort of like you are looking at the world and engaging with objects and it's not it's not you're not actually in a perspective you know you're not in a like an emotional culturally biased or whatever kind of perspective and all of these other movies and i think sutures river is a great example of that are very much placing you in a flawed perspective Um, somebody who's who's obsessed and like you know has these drives and urges and whatever and and something that like is ruining their life a little bit i feel
2: like with lady in the lake and other kind of first person i don't know that specific type of like first person perspective to me like you were saying kind of denying the imperfection of the the body itself and the biases of the actual like mm-hmm. person and just kind of presenting that perspective as a blank one for people to fill completely with themselves um yeah. i don't know to me i mentioned empathy machines earlier but this unfortunately is kind of the way that first person often gets deployed as i don't know it just has a way to like make people like feel something Mm-hmm. to me that lady in the lake kind of reminds me of those type of like 360 really emotional first person documentaries um, mm. where they just sit like a 360 camera in like a refugee refugee house or something like that and just go like I don't know just a way mm. of like putting you somewhere with no presence
1: yeah well it's interesting because I I I th- a movie that i watched that i feel like is kind of trying to do both that is very much like trying to use the first person as empathy machine but is also try- trying to be sort of aligned with a perspective that it sometimes questions is this uh independent like found footage first person movie from the 80s um called 84 Charlie Mopic, um which is this like low budget movie vietnam movie that follows a guy named like he's nicknamed like mopick cuz he's like the motion picture crew and he's like filming this platoon of soldiers um and interviewing them and in a lot of ways which i think this makes sense as you see the proliferation of digital cameras and videotape and stuff which i think this is also like a reason why found footage develops is just because it's like a way to do a sort of cheaper story and explain around a lower budget and so a lot of this movie is just like interviews and conversations with the guys in the pl- in the platoon as they're just sort of like hanging out or like just waiting or or you know moving somewhere or going to some camp or like They're just, you know, I don't know, taking a rest or whatever. It's it's a lot of like downtime with these guys. And so it's, you know, it's a war movie that doesn't have very much money and that doesn't have like government backing. Um, So obviously it kind of doesn't have the resources to do like huge set pieces, even though there are some battle sequences and stuff. Um, But I feel like it's very much a kind of an empathy machine because it feels very much like Um, uh, platoon oliver stone's platoon which came out just a few years before it and you know platoon is kind of notable because it was a movie that was really like one of the first vietnam movies to resonate like positively with veterans of the war um because they were like this is true to our experience this is made by a vietnam veteran this is kind of gritty and Uncensored and unfiltered and nasty and dirty, um, but also sort of passionate and romantic in some ways, too, and just kind of very complicated um, about the experiences about being on the front lines of the war. And I feel like 84C Mopic tries to do like kind of the same thing but just even more literally by like putting a camera in with the soldiers and so it's like this is really what it's like so you know they swear they say racist shit they it's just very like uh, you know authentic like downtime with the troops or whatever and it feels if you know it's this kind of um, journalistic in some ways maybe and reminded me a lot of the steel helmet by sam fuller which i think is like a really you know, one of like a you know just a really kind of classic, essential like sort of war platoon movie about the relationship between this ragged, ramshackle bunch of guys, which again is is the same thing as eighty four Charlie Mopic and um,
2: also the Steel Helmet. I feel like journalistic is an interesting word to use.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess I uh, I don't know. I guess I kind of like slipped into that just because like because of Sam Fuller's like own, own experience. Being both a soldier and a journalist, but I yeah. feel like that movie try, you know, it and the way at least it sort of presents itself or the way it's maybe considered historically, it is like as you know much more sort of documentary compared to other American war films of the time. You know, having characters that are vulgar and that do morally objectionable things. I mean, obviously all wars morally objectionable, but like you know, there are some. They have debates about whether or not they need to like kill that person or like you know, this kind of stuff. And, and it's so it's poking a lot more at the war than like generally you would have. So it's, I think that kind of, uh, I don't know. I think there's, there is this kind of like trying to make fictional cinema non-fictional is sometimes an impulse of the first person perspective. And I think you see that in these kind of war movies, but explicitly in something like 84 Charlie Mopick.
2: I was just going to say you mentioning it being a lower budget movie in first person that can't afford to have big explosions or anything like that. It made me start thinking about first person as kind of like a budget constraint or like a creative decision forced by budget constraints because you have fewer numbers of troops, mm-hmm. less action, more emotional and intimate, uh, but also less money.
1: Yeah. And I mean, you can excuse certain camera movements or or obscured angles or whatever, because it's, you know, someone in the heat of the moment or the heat of the battle or whatever. And I don't know, you know, I thought this was a sort of interesting kind of experiment again. Like some of these movies, I think, are definitely, a lot of the genre is like much more interesting to mine ideas from than, than to really like, than really are successful as films. But there is a very, very interesting moment in this where... The cameraman is talking about like working in a army film processing lab, and they would get like sent reels to process by and develop, uh, you know, film taken by army cameramen and photographers and stuff and he talks about getting sent reels filmed by guys who didn't make it back alive so they would get the guys filmed back but you know this person had died in combat or whatever and and so they have this record of like their final moments and the dude's talking about how you know he's like i was always horrified while we were like developing it and stuff and before we had to watch it because you never know what you were going to see sometimes you know you couldn't see anything at all it was nothing the camera jammed or the film ran out but other times you know you see just like absolutely terrifying bloody shit guys blown to bits and you see the cameraman die um which reminded me of a f- moment in a film that i sort of wanted to bring up because i feel like it's i don't know it gets into this sort of overlap with non-fiction but it's also just like a piercing moment to me of like unintentional first person cinema which is in the the three-part the, the end of the first part of the three-part documentary the battle of chile by patricio guzman I Thought you are gonna
2: say medium cool
1: oh i mean i think that's a i think medium cool you know the Haskell you know like it's real Haskell it's real which we've talked about that moment we talked about that with Rob a few episodes ago but I think that's a great example of this but in uh battle of chile which is about uh the coup and overthrow of allende um, and the installment of the pinochet regime at the very end of the first part there's this moment where you see some some soldiers you know who are participating in this coup and you see something going on you hear some shots fired and you see a soldier in the distance sort of flashes gun and then like there's camera movement and it tumbles and you don't really know what happened. And then it rewinds and you hear this narration that's sort of explaining what's happening. There's this like riot or something and the the police are just like going crazy and just cracking down on people. The soldiers are just like, you know, starting to fire at people and it freeze frames for a moment on this soldier. You see his gun, you see him take aim and then you hear a shot and then the camera falls and you realize that this the person who's been filming what you just watched was like just killed that literally the perspective that like now you've been watching is like that person has just been killed and and it's just this kind of like i don't know just like really disturbing and unsettling moment obviously for like political reasons but also just thinking about that kind of like piercing of the the camera lens you know like you think there's like safety in it but a bullet can shatter that that first person perspective you know for real
2: yeah i feel like that moment and moments like that have been taken a lot by like video games that try to tell bigger action stories and like probably 10 years ago or so i feel like that's been seen a lot of other places too
1: yeah I mean, I think that, you know, sort of leads us into the the sort of other part of all of this, which is obviously this has become way more prevalent as a style with the the real development of video gaming and first-person games and specifically first-person shooters a lot. I think you see a lot of, I mean, in the past, even before first-person shooters, a lot of times the first-person angles you would see would be like, The barrel of a gun or a sight because that's a kind of familiar sight or angle yeah but it becomes way more of a thing with first person shooters
2: yeah for sure first person shooters kind of came i mean in the same way that like in film the first person shot is used as kind of a way of like relating you to a character and kind of immersing you in like the environment first person shooters in video games kind of started off as at first as kind of this way of creating a whole world like inside the computer and it being there but also being feeling very immersed in the environment some of the Mm -hmm. first two that are kind of divergent in two different ways are mist and doom both of which came out i think in 1993 or 94 but they're very different games um mist is this game where you're just exploring an island in first person and you have these puzzles along the way doom being first person shooter i mean not the first first person shooter it software had made like return to castle wolfenstein before that and a tank warfare game before that as well um but doom was the one where the the term first person shooter became required just because there were so many games trying to be like doom
1: after that mm-hmm. do you ever think about how here's a real galaxy brain crossover game cinema moment fps first person shooter but fps also means frames per second boom, baby, mm-hmm. all cinema is first-person cinema because you're the one watching it yeah. from your own eyes <laughs> and you're in the first person of yourself. Wow. Boom. <laughs> going to drop my tabletop mic, going to lift my desk up and drop my oh, mic.
2: Oh, God. And um, I commented on a YouTube video earlier today, and when I was thinking about this, I was just thinking about the first person watching a YouTube video comments first isn't that crazy that's that's the real first person (laughs) it's the person who commented first yeah but (laughs) jeez. oh god but with doom and mist though like mist is like a non-violent game doom is like such a hyper violent game that like people like blamed columbine on and all this other stuff right doom part of the reason i mean people thought Mist was going to be this like huge thing um, I mean, it was huge. There were, like, five other games in the Mist series. Um, But Robert Yang wrote this, like, history of the first-person shooter kind of outside of, like, the general, like, industrial um, genre and how that developed within, like, what people call, like, the AAA game industry. But he pointed out in his review that when the New York Times ran a review of Mist, it ran it under the art section. And that was, like wow yeah well that was kind of just like the the prestige the 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 air of the whole thing um Mm -hmm. when really the game was kind of like like it's a bunch of high resolution images that you click to like transition between and it's made possible because the storage and data speed of like a cd-rom which is what it was based on and so you're just walking around and you have these puzzles and stuff Mm -hmm. it was interesting in this uh there's this quote from Rand miller where he was like talking about how people call the game like a puzzle game but they never really thought about it as a puzzle game when they were making mist and apparently the reason that they put the puzzles in was to build what they called friction so that you had time between an image loading and needing the next one to load so it was called friction to actually slow players down and like make them kind of sit around and like experience things which is an interesting way to kind of think about like first person media and like the way you engage with it and kind of the mechanics of that and then finding ways to like inhibit people
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing that i wanted to mention one piece of writing that helped me sort of distill some thoughts on this is this section of alexander galloway's book gaming which is about the which is called origins of the first person shooter and is about the first person shooter um, and also talks about first person cinema some and, and lady in the lake and, and films like that. Um, and he, as opposed to calling it like a point of view shot or like a first person shot, he sort of calls this like a subjective shot, which I think is a helpful, just like in terms of being, precise and in, in differentiating kind of cinematic devices and terms and stuff. But also I think just, I don't know, breaks a lot of this down because I feel like that's really what it, what that shot, what, what it's about, because there are, you know, like point of view shots in cinema where you are s- sort of at the perspective of the character, but not really in or it.
2: Like an eyeline match.
1: Yeah. And, and this is really about both the like literal visual subjectivity from the physical point of view but also a kind of emotional subjectivity as well and so i yeah i think that's that's one of the ways in which it's like trying to engage with the audience is sort of by i don't know i guess that kind of idea of like friction and inhibition is is interesting because when you are put in the first person perspective you are often limited in like your engagement or or what you see um, because you are just in this human mortal perspective, I guess.
2: Yeah. And Doom is kind of, you know, obviously very opposed to that. It's this game that's very fast, very in your face. And a game that's honestly a Mm -hmm. little bit, well, I mean, part of the reason Doom was such a huge success. I mean, it's very, it was very much outside of like the games industry as it had been at that moment. I mean, very popular over shareware and letting people download their game over the internet and a lot of people like Mm -hmm. say that the reason that doom was more popular than Myst is because players were able to mod it um this is kind of if you ever read like robert yang's people's history of the first person shooter that i mentioned earlier he kind of talks about the history of like modding within first person shooters and how a lot of people Mm -hmm. like spent their time modding i mean there were doom mods that switched out like intellectual properties and stuff like batman or the simpsons or aliens somebody made the movie of aliens in doom levels and they like modded in like acid like blood that would melt through things and all these alarm sounds and stuff but also a lot of people saw modding as their way to get a job making video games And eventually, a way for them to stop modding and start professionally making video games.
1: It's like fan fiction.
2: Exactly. If you get on Twitter and you spec script, yeah. If you get on Twitter and stand BTS enough, one day you'll get to work for them. And then you won't be a fan. You'll be an employee. You'll
1: be an you'll be an unpaid social media intern.
2: Yeah, exactly. All you'll about be the a team. I mean, honestly, this is kind of like the game industry in general. I'm sure the movie industry does this to an extent. Most cultural industries do. They operate off of like people working more than they should because they like something a lot.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Fandom is is a lucrative commodity. Being somebody being a fan of something is is a way to keep them in check.
2: Yeah, it's a way to get people to buy McDonald's meals.
1: Yeah, true to that.
2: In games, though, first person is like, it's interesting because it's like a way of like enticing somebody to into a video game and getting them more involved and just kind of drawing you in a little bit more. I won't say for like narrative immersion or anything like that, because most of the games that operate on a first person perspective are not gripping emotional tales. Um, right, right. <laughs> But it's also interesting to see some of the ways that independent developers use the first person perspective. I mean, what, you know, seven or eight years ago, Walking Simulator was like the big joke on the internet about games like Gone Mm -hmm. Home. Dear Esther came out much longer ago than that. But I mean, there are plenty of experimental and more like emotionally explorative first person games as well. Some of those I mentioned Robert Yang earlier, but he makes like some different games in the first person perspective. One of them that relates to this is Tea Room, mm-hmm. which is a game adaptation of the 2008-ish, I think, documentary called Tea Room. Tea Room was made by william e jones it just takes documentary footage of a public bathroom in like ohio in the 60s where men would go and cruise for public sex and the police department Mm. essentially put in a one or two-way mirror i don't know which one lets you see through the other side which one is that is that a two-way
1: i think so i don't know
2: i don't know it's a mirror on one side and a window on the other Anyway, they they had a camera guy sitting on the other side of a wall with one of these mirrors. And this movie is essentially like 60 minutes of this voyeur with a camera watching just people sucking and fucking in the bathroom. A little bit weird. I mean, there's no sound or anything like that. It is just like an hour of Mm -hmm. just straight uninterrupted images, mostly unedited. But Robert Yang made a game based on this where you don't move or anything like that. You're just at a urinal peeing and then you're next to a window. You have to watch the window if the police come and then you like play this. The whole interaction of the game is looking. Um, And part of like Mm -hmm. when he would like talk about the game before it came out was about how first person games and first person perspective in like games and movies are things where you can look freely and just stare at people and not get in any kind of like, Like nobody's going to act weirdly that you're just staring at them. Like in video games, you can just walk up to and usually like hit people, harass people, do all this shit with no consequences. (laughs) He kind of works that into this game by making it this game where you have to constantly be looking around, looking over your shoulder. And also men will come in and you like have to look at them at these like specified moments. And if you look at them at the wrong moment, your like likability points with them will go down, but it doesn't. It oh, didn't wow. really seem to actually, like, get in the way of my game, though, because, like, ones where I looked at all the right times versus ones where I didn't lasted just about the same amount of time. I didn't have to, like, work back those likability points with people. I don't know. The only other real thing of note is that these guys will just, like, have their zippers undone and walk toward you, and what will be in their pants is a gun, and this comes from this like critique of like his games getting like banned on twitch a bunch because he makes a bunch of like games where you're like spanking people or like like mm-hmm. eating corn dogs but it looks like it's a blow job kind of things I don't. He he makes a lot of like gay independent video games, and they get banned on yeah. Twitch. So he made a he made this thing where you have to like a game about looking in first person perspective, but you're like sucking on people's guns. It's a lot. Anyway,
1: is is that a gun in your pocket, or are you happy to see? Yeah, it? is that
2: an aug in your pocket? Is
1: that is that a blunt in your pocket?
2: <laughs> anyway, I mean, I felt like. I'd already mentioned some about Robert Yang and like some of his like research and writing on first person stuff, but he also does a lot of development with, with the first person perspective. I felt like that was worth mentioning because Tea Room is also, even though it's assembled by a director about 50 years after the footage was initially shot by the police department in this town. Mm -hmm. um, This is a, you know, it's a fully voyeuristic and state surveillance kind of facilitated first
1: person movie. I mean, when you think about it, any like any kind of movie that incorporates a surveillance view or surveillance footage is a first-person movie, like from the perspective of the state or or whoever's doing the surveilling. Yeah, Google Nest, panopticon, panopticon point of view.
2: Yeah, uh, one of the other games I thought would be worth mentioning that Robert Yang made is this one called Hard Lads that came out last summer i think it's a game adaptation of that video online of those like shirtless british dudes who like drink vodka and kiss and smoke cigarettes and then like whack a chair over the other person's back in this back alley you know what i'm talking about and they like throw the glass bottle down oh yeah he makes the he made this game adaptation of it where the player is the one holding the cell phone camera and it's a vertical phone camera and you have on the, the borders of the phone, you have like the, the real version of it right there. And so you look around and you can click on different mm-hmm. people and make them do their action and moving your mouse will like make people like move the chair up and down if they're going to whack somebody or, you know, that you can make them lift a cigarette up to their mouth or not. So you can kind of direct these performances and stuff. And it's kind of interesting because it's kind of about like the first person perspective of not only like making one of these videos that goes viral on the internet, but also the perspective of like being kind of this watcher watching this intimacy on your phone and having your mind go in all these different directions with what you're watching and, and what the Mm -hmm. real version of it might be. So I think I mean, that's an interesting way the first person perspective gets used in games outside of just shooting. I don't know. There are plenty of different ways that the first person perspective is used in, in really interesting ways.
1: Yeah, I I think it also sort of expands outward to a lot of other new media. I mean, obviously, there's like a sort of a lot of moving images now that are not strictly cinematic in nature or presentation. And so you have a lot of first person content on the Internet now, um of of various sorts and like virtual reality which i mean we've kind of touched on with like 360 degree filmmaking and and the sort of empathy machine (laughs) industry um but obviously virtual reality is all supposed to be first person and supposed to be the real zenith of this kind of like protagonist embodiment
2: yeah i think it's interesting because i feel like the first person perspective of, like, the GoPro that was really popular on the internet a while ago has kind of been replaced by, like, the no-person perspective of the drone that is not limited to the body. It can kind of go places the body can't, and you can get both for about the same price at, like, Best Buy.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of ways in which that, the limits of the camera historically in the limits yeah. of the body have been freed insane. of the camera person and now able to, yeah i mean it's very, it's like the kind of the plot of the movie holy motors like it's just about cameras getting smaller and becoming imperceptible and now you know they can very easily fly and and be mm-hmm. very light um but the body is still heavy and still subject to the laws of gravity um which there is one movie i feel like we're we're getting closer to the bottom of our first person bag but there is one movie that you watched i did not watch that i wanted to touch on because i feel like it's very influenced by just the whole history it's very reflective upon the whole history of first person cinema but very overtly influenced by games and new digital media as well and also about the kind of the limits of the human body because it's an action movie but that's hardcore henry
2: Mm -hmm. this one was kind of interesting to me because i'm watching the opening credits First of all, the opening credits have a strangler's needle drop. And then I saw the movie was produced mm-hmm. by Timur Bekmendikov, and it all clicked into place for me. I knew.
1: For the uninitiated, Timur Bekmendikov, of course, director of films like Wanted and Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, but perhaps most notably and most interestingly recently the producer of all of the screen life movies unfriended searching also director of profile which still has not been released in the u.s
2: Mm -hmm. but seeing his like recent production seeming to be like targeting a really specific like physical sensation Mm -hmm. of like viewership whether it's in the screen life or in the first person movie i don't know it's just interesting to me but yeah that movie is like a lot it's not all great it ha- it has like a lot of it has the guy from district nine whose name i can't remember the main protagonist he like uh, plays Char- like
1: charlotte Char- 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 copley or
2: that sounds right Whatever. he plays like multiple roles in this movie it's kind of funny but i don't know i mean the movie is just kind of like okay action scenes uh that where the central performer can't really do like a bunch of crazy cool stuff because they want to keep the image coherent i don't know i mean i was watching the movie and as i kept going it just ended up seeming more and more like um they were like just trying on a bunch of like first person shooter levels and tropes and stuff Mm -hmm. with like i mean one moment that's taken directly out of a video game is like there's a mission where you and a partner are in ghillie suits and you're carrying sniper rifles around in a forest and you're going to this construction site to kill somebody. That's directly out of like Call of Duty 4. Or I mean, skydiving for some reason. That's a common first-person thing. Is like for, they're just like I don't. It just seems like one of these recurring tropes. They're like everybody wants to do this. This is a way to get people's hearts. rates like yeah. Rates I, up.
1: If, if, it feels like very like tech demo shit
2: yeah that and like sometimes there's like parkour and wall running like mirror's edge Mm -hmm. i feel like is is one that i left off when i was talking about some maybe more alternative designs to the first person game but also like you know there's some other like sci-fi video game first person shooter shit of like you know hardcore henry is like in this lab that he breaks out of at the beginning and it's kind of like crank in a way where it uses this like evil scientist experiment as the way to explain the protagonist's situation Mm -hmm. but yeah i mean i don't really have a whole lot else to say about the movie like it went in one side of my brain and out the other i feel like i would love to see it on a big screen maybe that would have made me vomit but i feel like i would have gotten something out of it
1: you mentioned that it has like posters in it for uh uh... yeah
2: that's the other thing it like definitely like is weird because it it has these posters to other like I feel like landmark first person shooter stuff, at least to me in this way that feels like these people really are about it or they're really just like big fans and they're wanting to make something cool or something. But it has like posters for like, I mean, some video games like Half-Life and Left 4 Dead and Superhot. But the the main posters, there's one for Lady and the Lake these posters all come up when the guy is hardcore Henry himself is parkour running through these apartments. And he like jumps from one building into a window for another apartment across like and the next mm-hmm. building. And he gets in and it's like this, like dude ripping a bong on a couch and his whole living room is just covered. It's just, you know, the stoner dude whose wall is covered in posters type thing. And he has all these game posters and the mm-hmm. lady in the lake poster. Anyway, that's like the one like noteworthy thing that I feel like, Like ties back, obviously, to some other things in this episode.
1: Yeah, I feel like I also remember when you watched it, like mentioning that the director cited Enter the Void as an influence, which I feel like is another sort of like... (laughs) I don't, you know, that's I don't know. I haven't honestly seen that movie, but that's just sort of like another noteworthy, like novelty <laughs> experiment in this. Where I, I, yeah, I don't know. I feel like Gaspar Noé's whole project of like extreme, like sensation or whatever, lends itself to the first person because it's really trying to. It's very much a cinema of affect theory, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. with just a lot of like intense all over the spectrum from euphoria to horror kind of sensation
2: yeah i feel like we talked earlier about kind of the transition from gopo to drone and the camera being freed of the body in the same way that people talk about like the matrix bullet time being this thing that frees camera movement from real time or like free cinematic Mm -hmm. time from real time I did kind of I always appreciate these kind of movies where, like the body of the action star or in this case, the body of the cameraman is like medically and scientifically altered to be like a superhuman body. Mm
1: -hmm. I don't know. Mm -hmm. That's
2: a I think that's about all I have to say about Hardcore Henry. Oh, one thing we haven't noted this whole time is the Doom movie, which is mentioned twice on the first person shooter game genre Wikipedia article page. They mentioned the movie of doom twice. Oh yeah. Anyway, that's only it worth mentioning
1: first person.
2: Yeah. It ends with the, the big first person fight, you know, an a little bit of an Easter egg or an homage to people who have played the game.
1: Yeah. If you saw the movie now play the game. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think also one thing that, you know, one, one kind of trends of this and feature of the cinema, which, obviously it relates to the sort of tendency of voyeurism in the first person cinematic perspective that we've talked about and is also sort of linked to Gaspar Noé since he's somebody who's so sort of like influenced by and and like trying to do like art house porn or whatever uh, and there's like such a long and and uh, uh endless body of pov and first person pornography yeah which again is something that i think is like uh, largely because of of digital cameras and stuff which has made so much has has allowed for so much innovation and development and new kinds of pornography but particularly with like i don't know it's like it, it, it is a sort of perspective that i think people Take a lot more naturally now, and sort of it makes sense in a way where you can like believe it because it sort of mimics like camming or like a webcam perspective, um, which sort of relates to like you know, screen life or whatever, where you are sort of you know, you sort of feel like you're the invisible p- viewer in this party, like. On, on the other end of a computer kind of viewing what's happening. So you're sort of in this perspective with this person on screen. And so a lot of times I feel like first-person porn will kind of mimic that sort of like the intimacy of like a, a Skype session or something almost kind of in the way that you're being addressed as a viewer or, or catered to.
2: Yeah, and I think it operates a little bit on the same principles as something like found footage movies with low-budget equipment or like cheaper equipment and things where like sometimes like what would be seen as like flaws or evidence of like the tangibility of the equipment and stuff like that is taken as like a kind of like intimacy i feel like a lot of like you know now that you have like a camera on your phone and stuff like that and that being a way that like some people like make porn i feel like those kind of get i I feel like it like gears people to accept that kind of like first person perspective and something like that or making it like effective or eye-catching or engaging or something like that as a way of i don't know just convincing somebody of the reality of
1: it i mean i think that's like another really good point as to like why even just generally there's there's so many facets that we've talked about of 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 more recent kinds of first-person perspective media but i i think part of why it's just such a more prevalent mode now is because there is that like we all sort of have an intimate relationship with cameras and this kind of emotional affectionate sometimes relationship with cameras that you know, has existed in the past but Again, the sort of size or complication of technology has sort of limited the spread of that or the sort of mass appeal of it. And so somebody could be have a really intimate emotional relationship with their camera as an object in the past, but now it's kind of like everyone has a camera so and we're all sort of in this kind of relationship with the camera it's just i don't know i was just thinking recently like i i was like listening to like some like ghost face song from like the earlier 2000s and he said like the word camera phone and i was just thinking about how like there's no camera phones anymore it's just a phone <laughs>
2: Yeah, this actually relates back to another movie that's not exactly first person, but is one that I wanted to mention, though, which is Blast of Silence. This is actually another noir movie that messes around with narration. But rather than first person, it's second person. The whole movie is narrated in this kind of tone of like the narrator talking to himself, which is the protagonist. So and this reminds me of selfies because um, selfies are kind of like It's not exactly a mirror. Um, It's one that you're kind of like operating with your arm. Um, But in you operating this third party and like having this like kind of command and control over it and knowing how to like subject yourself to it in a way that like, you know, people know their angles when they take photos. People know like what lighting works best Mm -hmm. and all this stuff. And people like know how to like operate this machine around them in a way that makes them look best. I don't know. It's just this very like intimate relationship with the outside of yourself in this way that reminds me of the movie *Blast of Silence*, and I makes like when I was watching it, I was like, this is kind of like I don't know. It feels like a selfie movie or something because it feels like the viewer is like sitting at the border of like the inner self talking to the outer self, and it's like mm-hmm. the the protagonist's mind is like talking to like the way people see him
1: yeah i had honestly it's been a long time since i've seen it and i'd honestly kind of forgotten about that element um but i remember like watching it and being very startled by that i don't know it's like when you read a book and it's in a like different tense than you're used to or something like it just grounds you in a very different way and kind of throws you off and i think makes it goes back to sort of like a kind of i don't know an unreliability almost where it's sort of like complicates your relationship with uh, the reality of the worlds that you're being presented with
2: yeah and i think it takes like a lot of you know a lot of people have this stereotype of noir movies being this thing where someone just has this jaded outlook on the whole world and everything like that and is like probably depressed but you know i feel like a lot of noir movies aren't as like self aren't as into like the self-deprecation that blast of silence is because it talks about it's Mm -hmm. like just complete like self-loathing and self-deprecation the whole time rather than just like being depressed and unaware of it and just projecting that out on the rest of the world rather than like projecting it back on your image of yourself
1: yeah i mean i think that's that really kind of gets to some some i was sort of trying to gesture about in the earlier discussion about noir and perspective where really like, yeah, I think Blast of Silence is kind of like the ultimate <laughs> nihilism and solipsism of the first person perspective, where it's just like this total world of of self-loathing and resentment and emotional isolation. And there is so much isolation and alienation in war as a tendency and style. But I think that really kind of takes it to the extreme. And so it's really like it almost like breaks. That's why I think it goes to the second person, because it almost like breaks the first person a little bit because it's not a purely like visual world. It's like an emotional world that you're seeing.
2: Yeah. I mean, some other examples, I'd say a first person or like like real estate videos listing videos Mm -hmm. these are just like other ways this gets used outside of like outside of movies and stuff which porn and real estate kind of related industries in terms of how they use like how they use uh filmmaking technology Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and how they influence a lot of i don't know a lot of industry trends and things you know real estate if you want to work in video is pretty much the thing you can get a job doing video work for just about anywhere Mm -hmm. especially if you have a drone
1: I think there's also a lot of like embodied sort of viewing on YouTube, like, you know, like slime videos with just the hands or cooking videos with the hands that are sort of ostensibly from the vantage point of the person preparing the ingredients or like you know any or any kind of like tech video where somebody's maybe kind of fixing something or showing you how to fix something Mm -hmm. and again you're only really seeing the hands and you're sort of getting that perspective um which again is like again because of technology gopros smaller cameras all of that um but i think it also just kind of reflects how the internet so often feels like it's all in the first person Like it's all being made for you and or you are the author or protagonist of the reality of the Internet. You're it's all tenant on the Internet.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: But also
1: with first person movies and stuff like we're talking about Lady in
2: the Lake. And things it's like there's a lot of eye catchers on the screen and a lot of things that kind of flash and like get your attention and the internet mm-hmm. so much feels kind of like a sensation machine and like this is like the style of video that is maybe less popular now but was really popular for a long time where these first person cooking videos are these videos that are really about sensations like hot knives mm-hmm. cutting into something or like stuff getting crushed, stuff getting melted.
1: Strangely satisfying.
2: Yeah, the strangely satisfying subgenre of movies as well. Pimple popping, all these things. There's also this other channel I follow. I think this ultimately reaches over into ASMR, which is another form of kind of first person videos and stuff. Like one of the first examples of that. I remember was like, probably mentioned on this podcast before, but on Tumblr there was this post of like somebody making a 3D audio recording of like getting a haircut and you can hear the guy like cutting around your head and talking to you as he walks around. I guess to bridge over to ASMR, I think another form of this is unboxing videos. And there's this channel that I found on YouTube that I can't remember the name of, but it's first person ASMR unboxing videos of video game like imports. And this guy just wears these gloves. He uses really precise knives. They're like almost completely quiet videos of him opening boxes. And unboxing videos, I've thought about them for a while. I guess they're less popular or less zeitgeisty now. But to me, the unboxing video is a kind of like first-person video that's about kind of delivering the sensation of like a new commodity Mm -hmm. and about like receiving something for the first time, you being the first person to open it and seeing everything that's inside.
1: One of my favorite YouTube channels, which unfortunately is like, he changed his name and pivoted to other kinds of content. I think maybe he got a different job or something, but there's this guy whose name was Utz Gang Soldier and he was like, he restocked Utz, Utz Gang. Chips.
2: Oh, nice. Ut- Just on the front and line. so,
1: yeah. So it was like him filming himself like in his truck early in the morning, going into grocery stores all along the East Coast and it was like he had a gopro on his head and he would film the perspective of him like stocking the chip bags and it's again it's one of those th- it's just kind of strangely satisfying thing where for some reason seeing these empty shelves like fill up with chip bags very qu- and seeing him move very quickly and also kind of the sound of the plastic sort of rustling is like weirdly fulfilling in some kind of brain way i don't know what the neurology on that is but uh it it was sort of fascinating uh first person cinema to me
2: this actually reminds me of this game ever since we did our last episode i've had like and i just said like games from 2020 were awful i played two pretty great games but one of them is this playable or interactive kind of 360 documentary called Mm -hmm. out for delivery that's was made in China on January 23rd of 2020 and it's this interactive documentary that um, follows these food delivery people and they're kind of like delivery Mm -hmm. app and delivery service people and so this documentary follows them on the day that Wuhan shut down for COVID, which was unintentionally Mm -hmm. the day that it fell on but so what you're watching is you're kind of watching in the same way that I think you talked about the last episode of how to with John Wilson following kind of these mundane actions, but unintentionally capturing this moment. But also it's this thing where you're just watching people deliver food and you're kind of watching the menial and repetitive tasks that it takes to like, I don't know, get food from your phone to your doorstep. Mm -hmm. It's not out all the way, but the preview build is out and it's pretty good. Anyway, that was something that came to mind as we're talking about kind of just like first person, just like just documenting All this shit that I'm doing to make life and society run.
1: Yeah, just the monotonous first-person existence of being a human on Earth. I don't know about you, but this first person is starting to wind down on my thoughts on the first-person perspective. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Do you have any more? I'm trying to make some joke
2: about Ready Player One. But it's not happening.
1: Ready player first yeah, person. This
2: player is not ready. <laughs> That's probably it. Where can people go on the internet to see the brain leakage?
1: My personal brain worms are at Trillmore Girls. Where are your personal brain worms <laughs> stored? Where it's where's the jar it's worms?
2: At ASAP sunscreen.
1: And collectively at Hotbox the Cinema, of course, on Twitter. You can listen to us on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple yeah. Podcasts.
2: Wherever you're listening to us right now, keep going there.
1: Wherever good content is, is distributed freely, uh, flowing like water Yeah, forever. The Hotbox hotline is 615-592-1003. That's 615 592 1003. So give us a, a little dial, a ring, a buzz, a beep. Let us know your thoughts, your tweets, your yeah. voice tweets.
2: And you can email us at hotboxthecinema@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Um, if you want to send us an evite to, I don't know, an event, I don't want to try it, see what happens.
1: Yeah, if you want to invite us to a Zoom call you know <laughs> uh yeah to you a can wedding do or if you want to like yeah if you want to like make an account on a website using our email i mean you can do that too we have yeah. no emails we have no messages but maybe next time we will also yeah. i just noticed i think it's just the default google background but the background on our gmail is grass which is fitting perhaps <laughs> just saying jeez
2: oh, do we have any future content to pitch this can get cut if we don't
1: well yeah actually we do have an episode that should not be out in too much longer after this one probably with a special guest critic and
2: letterbox user writer
1: letterboxd user uh, vulgar auteurist also sporadic contributor and guest on Cinematary, the other podcast and website that I help out with. Mike Thorne great guy, great thinker. Um, he's going to be joining us to talk about a filmmaker who passed away recently, Stacy Title who directed movies like The Bye Bye Man and Snoop Dogg's Hood of Horror and The Last Supper with Cameron Diaz and I don't know, I just like you know, I heard that she passed and I sort of looked at her filmography and I knew the Bye Bye Man and I had not seen that movie, but I have been always been curious about it. And just looking at her filmography, I'm like, this is seemed like seems like somebody who's career is maybe deserving of a little retrospective. Um, and, mm-hmm. and Mike was like also really interested in looking at the few movies that she was able to do over a very long career. Uh, so we'll just be chatting about that, I think.
2: Yeah, this is going to tourism. Find- finally get me to watch the bye-bye man after years of it being like my favorite movie title
1: saying hello to the bye-bye man mm-hmm. don't think it don't say it anyway i was thinking we have to title we have to break with the naming convention and name that episode don't think it don't smoke it <laughs> so that's a that's a taste of what's to come it's a puff the hot puff box, puff box that's so bad. anyways <laughs> the hot box comment box Anyways, till next time, keep on talking.
0: It's like you got silver piles. Turn my minutes into how you got more than twenty, twenty, baby. Made a glass way you said through me. Better than I do Can't seem to keep nothing from me you How you touch my soul from the outside Trust me, trust me. The way that you trust. Jedi I've ever seen. You dad ever did? Oh, you're nuts, man. This film is you just have five nights at the show, time. man. You can have it filmed one would night. What would you, would
2: you listen to me? Yeah. yeah. This film is nothing more than a record album yeah.
0: on film. It's kind of gets in the way of everybody here, though. Four or five Hello. years from now, you're gonna be grateful yeah, that this thing will be done. Tell me you that. are gonna
2: pay four or five dollars to see this. I don't know, but I'll be alive five years from well, now. Neither do I, Well, if you are alive, you're
0: crazy as you'll man. be in that theater and I bet uh, you have that money on? Yeah. What's your name? I'll take your address. No, my name, my name, is name is John Williams. John Williams? Yeah. yeah. Sam Hughes. Hi <laughs> Sam. Adele Adele no, anything know. that I will not be at that movie. Five it's always man. good to see a real dead Man around. Yeah, why are you so uptight? You feel you're being exploited? Yes. Are, in what uh, way? Who is going to get royalties. It's like this, you, if this little thing, which there's no you, way it's going to be do a movie, you, do you, but if this was here and there were five million people watching this movie all over the world, do you, and I was being in the movie right here, took my time, but this is ten minutes of my time. Say so this is all in the movie. Wait, These are people charged do are are I the get royalties. What I? Excuse no, me, Sam. Royal a royal say Saint Stephen! <laughs> crazy. Love oh, oh. oh, She's sure. crazy because he doesn't realize. He does not realize. No, it's I, I hope this movie Great comes true man, really. It will, we know it will. The omnipotent Grateful Dead.